0: Welcome to the Sideline Podcast. Today is Monday, November 9th, and we welcome you inside the epicenter of college football. My name is Justin Berger, and I am joined by Doug Watley and Alec Kieser. Let's get right into it. Another big win for the now 10th ranked Indiana Hoosiers. Alec, let's start with you. What a weekend. What a win. Go Hoosiers.
1: I'm not going to say I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Like I sat right in this chair last week and said I already hammered the Hoosiers money line and plus three and a half. Obviously, both of them smashed. Uh, all, just off the bat, feels good to go to a football school.
0: It does, certainly. Doug, your, your immediate thoughts, then we'll get more contextual with the offense.
1: It
2: was a domination by the Hoosiers. and Michigan, they've had their own problems. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But from Indiana's perspective, they started off well. And then they never let Michigan get back into the game, kind of like they did against Penn State. So that's a big improvement. And we'll get into the details of offense and defense, but a team win all the way around. I know Tom Allen said after the game, he gave the game ball to Michael Penix Jr., but it was really to the full team because it was a team win.
0: Well, you could have given it to anyone there. Doug, I think you brought up a very good point. Uh, the Penn State game, although a very good win, not a complete domination, The word to use your word, IU was in control. They were in the driver's seat for 60 minutes of this game, and that what that's what impressed me so much. We'll start with Penix because he did get the game ball. His stats really show out. A big sports center night for Michael Penix, some would say. 30 for 50, 342 yards, three touchdowns, no turnovers. So the game we've been waiting for for Michael Penix against a pretty good Michigan defense. Well, I mean, I keep... Like, I, I keep going back to
1: highlighting the things that we know going into games and what we knew about this Michigan Wolverines team was that their secondary uh, was prone to mistakes and prone to the big play. And so what Indiana do? they dropped back and threw it over 50 times. And Penix was phenomenal. He was absolutely phenomenal. Not to say that, I mean, Ty Freifogel was a- absolutely ridiculous as well. Watt Fillier had a great game. Hendershot um, dropped another ball that was definitely catchable, but yeah. still he played well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the orchestrator was phenomenal in this game.
2: Yeah, Pennix really led this offense, and it was a mix between the passing attack and the rushing attack. Stevie Scott, hell of a game. Samson James got involved, and he got some meaningful carries. So you mentioned Freifogel. I think maybe the, num- the best number two wide receiver in the Big Ten. You saw some of the catches. The one-hander down the field, he had 142 yards this game and a touchdown to go with it. So the options that this team has, and we knew it coming into the season like you were saying, But for it to come together in a big-time game and you got that first win out of the way against Penn State, but you got to back it up with meaningful wins against other big teams, they did that against the Wolverines.
0: You talked about Stevie Scott and Samson James. Stevie Scott, 24 carries, 97 yards. Samson James, 8 carries, 25 yards. 118 total for the Hoosiers if you include Michael Pinnock's four. Two touchdowns from Stevie Scott. Just really doing the Lord's work, pushing the ball on the ground. Even the ability to get a play action with Pennix. Also, when you talk about Pennix, we've talked about how important this run game is for the Hoosiers. Stevie Scott, Samson James may not be the most dynamic running backs in the Big Ten or even the nation, but what a good a good run game can do for a team is is unquantifiable. Pennix, being able to force the Michigan defense off sides, I think it was three times in the first half.
2: Four, to be honest, I think.
0: I don't know if that's more of a reflection on his hard count or if that is an indictment on Don Brown's defense being completely undisciplined. Either way, shout out to Michael Pinnock for being able to take advantage of Michigan's mistakes.
2: Yeah, and I think he got two touchdowns at least out of mm-hmm. them. I know one was to Miles Marshall who mossed the defender and a great catch to put the Hoosiers on the board. But the hard count was huge because every time you get the defense offsides and you have a quarterback that realizes it, You take the shot 10 times out of 10. You can go short for two yards, but do that on a play where there's no offsides and you have to get yardage one play. When you have the offsides and when you have the defense jumping, you go deep, you take the chance, incomplete, interception, whatever. You get the ball back, you get some
1: yards. If it's complete, touchdowns come out of it. Yeah, exactly. Free play, you want to make things happen. Um, But honestly, the most impressive thing to me was five minutes and five seconds left in the fourth quarter. Joe Milton's intercepted by Devon Matthews. Uh, and for the last five minutes, Indiana runs the ball seven straight times and is able to run the clock down against a Michigan team who is supposed to have the better athletes in every position, is supposed to have the superior coaching, uh, has beaten uh, this Hoosiers team 24 times in a row, and you take the ball and you run it down their throat seven times in a row and, and run the clock out five minutes, so it was re- like really, really impressive to watch as a Hoosiers fan to watch that offensive line manhandle a Michigan team that is supposed to be better than a- better than them in every facet.
0: You talk about those last five minutes. Time of possession was a storyline for the Hoosiers again this week. 38 minutes and 50 seconds controlling the ball. That's just about two thirds of the game. So to be able to keep Joe Milton and Michigan's offense off the field, very impressive again for Penix and the Hoosiers offense. And
2: the time of possession comes from the rushing attack, but also zero turnovers by this Hoosiers offense. And Penix is great accuracy if he's on. So
1: for when he was playing well, For him to have zero turnovers, three touchdowns, not a surprise at all. Mm -hmm. In turnovers, again, the story in this game, Michigan's offense came in with no turnovers in the day. Um, I believe Milton threw uh, two interceptions and they fumbled once, right? Um, Yeah. So three turnovers by the Michigan offense. The Hoosier defense and, I mean, uh, Jamar Johnson getting ejected in the first quarter of the game wasn't great. But, I mean, the defense as a whole, you can't say enough good things about this Hoosier defense. Eight turnovers, by the way, for the Hoosiers
2: this season on defense. That's the most they've had in the 21st century.
0: I have said all year and even preseason if I, we know how good this defense, at least we, I thought the three of us did, knew how good this defense was going to be coming, especially the secondary, coming into this season. If Michael Penix can be the quarterback that people think he's going to be, this team's scary. Now you see a 10th ranking and it's warranted. People, I was I was in class again today. It always happens on Monday. But teachers and assistant athletic director were talking like this is becoming a normal feeling. Like you expect to win against good teams. My point with the defense: twelve possessions, Michigan's offense had the ball, so twelve times Indiana's defense was on the field. Seven punts, three touchdowns, and two interceptions. Those two interceptions on the last two of Michigan's offensive drives. So being able again, you go back to talking about being able to close out a game. IU's defense certainly did that this week.
2: And it's a name that you've mentioned the past three weeks, Justin, Kane Womack. Yes. This defensive coordinator gave him another shout out. They held this Michigan rushing attack to 13 yards, the lowest an IU opponent's had since 2002. So finally, you we're setting all these records. You see the AP polls rushing in and, and IU moving up every week. You see records every time. It's become like you just said, a norm for this Hoosiers offense or in yeah. defense too.
1: And I know this podcast is, is definitely a huge fan of the baby blue. We're gonna have to twist some arms and uh maybe weasel our way into some athletic gear there. Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean you said it. Uh we keep creeping up the and I keep saying we because we go to, we all go to IU. We keep creeping up this AP ranking. We're now ten and you're I mean, as a Hoosier's fan, your eyes kind of start to light up when you look at the rest of the schedule. Obviously you got a big one in two weeks with uh with OSU. Um, but, yeah, there are some, uh, there's some fun possibilities out here in Bloomington.
0: A couple more things before we move on. Uh, third down. Been a storyline all season. It's a storyline for every team every year. But IU was 9 for 18 on third down, which is just fantastic. To be able to go 50% on third down is incredible. Michigan, 3 for 11. And that, that really tells a story. They just couldn't get the ball rolling consistently. Also, Harbaugh. Is the time, I'm going to get to this a little later with both of them, or there's another name, but I'm sure you know who it is, but what do we do at this point? Embarrassing loss to Michigan State two weeks ago, a loss on the road against the 10th best team in the country this past weekend, Jim Harbaugh has not won a big game at Michigan, a meaningful game at Michigan, at least one you can remember. So where does the University of Michigan's athletic department go after the season or even in the middle of the season? Two strains of thought here.
2: One, which I side more with, is who is going to be better than Harbaugh, especially this season, even next season? I say you give him another chance, and if it really continues to be a problem, I mean, look, next week, they have, they're they playing Wisconsin, if they are able to play, on primetime. So he gets another chance. If he loses that one, that's just another resume, big-time loss, but... You lose these big games. That's one one strain of thought, you can't do it. You're Michigan Wolverines. You have the the alumni money, you have the boosters, you have the recruits. You just can't win games. But then who do you who
1: can you do that's better? Exactly. Like it's a two-pronged sword like uh, where do you go that's better than Harbaugh? Like what what better options are out there for the University of Michigan? But at the same time, it's like at some point you have to win. Like they haven't beat Ohio State since you got there. Um, they haven't beat – or they have maybe one win or no wins against Michigan State since he's gotten there. Um, lost again on the road to a good Hoosiers team. So I don't think it's, like, time to really panic because I think this Indiana team, like, like we've been saying for weeks, is really, really good. Um, but, yeah, at a certain point you have to win. And so is time running out? Yes, I believe so, but I don't think – it's all the way out. Let me throw a
2: name in there because we were just saying who's better. This guy might be better if he changes his views from past coaching experience. Cincinnati's Luke Fickle. Yeah. Any thoughts on
0: that? Uh I do we're gonna actually you you were reading my mind again. This is why we flow so well <laughs> together. We're gonna talk about Fickle a little later, but yes, I don't but I guess Michigan's obviously an upgrade there. But Fickle is a guy, I think him and um Hugh Freeze are the two candidates this offseason who are going to be able to get whatever job they want. I don't know if Fickle's going to leave after this season because of what he's been able to build at Cincinnati, and it's not like they're all graduating this year. So I think Fickle's going to wait for the the exact right choice for him, Um, but we'll talk about that in a second. First, I want to talk about just a brief preview next week, noon on ABC, IU at Michigan State. Similar to a Rutgers' game, coming off a big win, go play an inferior opponent on the road. Michigan State—it's really been a tale of two teams for their three games uh, last week. Blown up by a really bad Iowa team; they lost 49 to seven. Rocky Lombardi did not get it going like he did against Michigan the other week. So, what does this Hoosiers team have to do to stay anchored, move the ship? and go into Columbus for now
1: they just gotta they, they have to take this game seriously the same way that they did with Rutgers they obviously it's hard to be like don't look ahead because we know what looms in two weeks with uh, arguably the best team in the country but you can't like if you want to continue to be a good team if you have dare I say playoff aspirations or uh, New Year's Six Bowl aspirations then these are games you have to win no like no excuses you have to win these games you're the better team you have the better defense. You have the better offense. Yes, you're on the road, but you have to win this game. Michigan State
2: went down in the first half against Iowa 35-0. to So if Indiana could do that a little bit, not to necessarily <laughs> that extent, but at least build a lead early on and then let them hold it like they did against Michigan, that's the recipe for success.
0: All right, another game in the Big Ten. Our old friends, the Nittany Lions, there is trouble in Happy Valley. Back to back losses at home. Not that home field is some, you know, big thing this year, but you're still playing at home. Penn State's 0-3 for the first time in I don't know how long. Um, it's bad. They lost to Maryland 35 to 19. Talia Tagavailoa is pretty good. 282, three touchdowns, no turnovers, another great rushing attack from the Terrapins. 123 total on the ground, 35 carries, really paced it well. Sean Clifford was fine. Uh the problem is he had 3 turnovers, 2 picks and a fumble. He played well aside from that, but it's very similar to what we saw from him in the IU game. So where does this Penn State team go from here? They're they're out of it. They have no bowl or no New Year's 6 game aspirations, which for them pretty much means their season is over. What do you do from here in the last 6 games of the season to pick up the pieces?
1: Yeah, I mean Like you said, ball security has been the issue. Week one against Indiana, he has the two interceptions early, puts them behind the eight ball. Um, This week, like you said, two interceptions and a fumble, three turnovers. Uh, Yeah, there's um, fires going on in Penn State right now. I I mean, you can see week one they lost by inches, okay, um, and we all know, like we just discussed for the last 15 minutes about the Hoosiers. um, Last week they lose to Ohio State, so it's like, okay, um, but this Maryland loss is a little more dangerous because it's not like it's not like Maryland's a bad team, right? Um, we watched them beat Minnesota, but I mean, yeah, not not great for Penn State. Yeah, you
2: first give credit to Maryland because they barely got by Minnesota last week. It was without if they hit a field goal or an extra point, Minnesota, then it would have gone into three overtimes. That didn't happen, and Maryland won. Now you rebound. Not a lot of people really believe that went hundred percent. You go into Penn State and dominate. Well, let's be real though. Penn State, if you look at a lot of the stats, had more first downs, had more total yards. It was the penalty or is the uh, turnovers that killed them? So, for them to get better and at least get at least a
0: positive record this season, they got to fix that issue. That sounds like a, the trends they had in the Indiana game too. Uh, you look at Penn State's schedule, Nebraska, Iowa, Michigan, Rutgers, Michigan State, there's opportunities there to right the ship in the in the offseason. Again, I'm going to get to talking about their head coach a little later, but you can't be 0-3 at Penn State. You cannot be 0-3 at Penn State, especially with two home games. Uh, also, worth mentioning, while we're in the Big Ten. Oh, actually, before we move on to that, Mike Loxley, head coach at Maryland, he... Was Alabama's offensive coordinator. This is his second year in Maryland. So before that, he spent a, a couple of years on Nick Saban's staff. And what all he did was bring Talia Tagavailo with him to uh, to College Park, Maryland. And he is having success. It's year two. He's got one or two more years before you know you can seriously be judged as a head coach. But he's bringing in his guys, and it's working. Everyone likes good good college or good college football from the Terrapins. So I'm looking forward to that. Also in the Big Ten, we don't have to talk about the game. But Peyton Ramsey and the Northwestern Wildcats are 3-0. Block out the haters. Let's go, Peyton Ramsey. Happy about that. Let's move to the ACC. Another big—I mean, if Indiana didn't have its first win against Michigan in 33 years, we would be talking about this game first. Notre Dame and Clemson, an instant classic. Mike Tirico on the call on a Saturday night. You don't get to say that that often in prime time. Very exciting game uh dj ugulele yep pretty good yeah uh i'll take it a absolutely fantastic game from him and ian book was just as good notre dame i should have said won in double overtime 47 to 40 a uh a really dreadful offensive uh second overtime for clemson i think they were like minus 30 yards in that in that overtime but a instant classic
2: the game of the year so far, and I don't think anything will really get better. 47-40. to 40. It was back and forth. Both teams had leads at points. Both teams battled back. Like you said, double overtime. And Notre Dame's defense won them the game. And you talked about Clemson's offense in the second overtime. But it was really the the pass pressure from Notre Dame that really got to the Clemson quarterback. And ukulele has been great all game. A little bit pressure. He's got to fumble a little bit, and couldn't make enough plays and had a desperation throughout the end, didn't really work. The Clemson not at full strength without Trevor Lawrence. Both teams we'll see again play again in the ACC championship.
1: Yeah, I think what's what's cool for us is that we're definitely going to, not definitely, but most likely going to see this, this rematch again in the ACC cha- uh, championship game. But I have a question for you guys, and honestly just a thought about like older Notre Dame fans. Like, How do you guys feel about the students storming the field? Because if I could frame it for you this way, like you're Notre Dame. Like the the tradition and and like football acumen of that school, yet yeah, you're. St- I I don't I don't know. I I, I kind of go back and forth on it because I know they beat the number one team in the country, but like you're also Notre Dame, so are you really? I don't know. It's also COVID times. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's, that's I I mean, is that that's a factor. Too, that too. Listen,
0: my take is. Yeah, I, this is why I think the Big Ten has done such a good job, because I know if my ass was in Memorial Stadium in the Penn State game, Absolutely. my ass would have been on the field. 100%. So, do I blame the Notre Dame students, who were packed like sardines, by the way, in that stadium, for rushing the field? Absolutely not. No. If you didn't want them to storm the field, don't put them in the stadium. Uh, I, I just cannot put blame on a bunch of eighteen to twenty two year olds for being excited that their team won the biggest game of their life. Uh is it classy for Notre no, no, Dame? I just I just think like uh, you know, I like, get what you're saying. The tradition, the pageantry. Notre Dame still beat the number one team in the world. Um I'm without just saying, their If you're best Notre player. Dame,
1: You should expect to
2: to like do that. Yeah, but Clemson has not lost a regular season game since 2017 yeah
1: I know I don't know I just I get how
2: Notre Dame's a legendary school but if you beat the number one team especially in a game like this in double overtime you're not thinking about the past you're thinking about the present
0: I am going to agree with Doug uh also Charlotte you guys talked about the potential rematch the probable rematch Trevor Lawrence will most likely be playing in that game so it is uh, the the good thing for Notre Dame Notre Dame controls their own destiny now. All they have to do is beat Clemson one more time, and I say that so nonchalantly, but all they have to do is win and they're in. If they lose, it it gets a little bit more hazy, but now it, we're at the point where the ACC champion is definitely in, even if it's Clemson with one loss. Uh, it's it's different if it's Notre Dame with one loss as the ACC champion, but a one-loss Clemson team is absolutely in. What stuck out to me in this game statistically was how ineffective Travis Etienne was. And you talked about uh, Notre Dame's defense and how impressive they were. But Etienne, 18 carries for 28 yards. And I know we were talking before the game started. It was like, this is just going to be the Travis Etienne game. Going to hand it off to him 600 times and let him run the rock. Really turned out, Ugolele controlled the game, and Etienne was virtually ineffective, ineffective, not great. Uh just general thoughts moving forward for Clemson. Obviously, they're in the ACC now, so this is the hardest game for both of them. Um, so really, it's just about gearing up until the ACC championship.
1: Yeah, it's more so big picture. Um, obviously, I think this game looks a little different with Trevor Lawrence, but we'll never know. I guess we'll find out. Uh, but yeah, uh, just more, more so big picture. Do you think uh, if Trevor Lawrence's Clemson beats Notre Dame in the ACC championship game, do you see a scenario where a one-loss and game team also makes the playoff?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh like we said the Big 12 is out of it. The Big 10 is realistically going to get only one team. There's only one way I see the Big 10 getting more than two and it at like without, you know, being an idiot, it's if Indiana beats Ohio State and Ohio State ends the season with one loss. And then, uh, you know, IU or the Big Ten West team is an undefeated Big Ten champion and Ohio State not playing.
1: If IU beats Ohio State and then they'd have to win the Big Ten because if Ohio State didn't lose to the Big Ten champion, then they'd be out.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. So there could be – there's a route for two Big Ten teams. Um,
1: what a what a reality that would there's be. There's a
0: route for two SEC teams. You Most could make definitely. an argument that a 6 and 0 Pac-12 team could get in. Uh, like we said the Big 12's out. Also, you got Cincinnati, you got I mean they're not going to make it, but you got Liberty who's undefeated and BYU. you got BYU who's undefeated. So, there's a lot of really good teams out there. There's probably 10 realistic teams that have a shot at making the playoff right now. So, is there a path? Yes, is it probably going to happen? I wouldn't think so, not this year.
2: Everything's possible right now. you got to see the next couple of weeks. I think all the teams you just mentioned except for Liberty has a fair shot at getting in the college football playoff. It's just what happens in next couple of weeks, and we'll talk about it once it gets closer to see some more realistic scenarios. Oh, we're
0: talking about Liberty, so let's talk about them. 38-35 to 35 win at Virginia Tech, which isn't nothing. Uh, talked about Hugh Freeze. Hugh Freeze had some coaching... Uh, discrepancies while he was at Ole Miss, which is why he was fired. But people forget, in the first-ever college football playoff ranking, Ole Miss was the number 1 team. Hugh Freeze is a very good head coach. He gets his guys ready to play. Liberty, not known for their athletic department, so certainly very impressive that they're 7-0. and uh, pretty good wins. I mean, a relatively good wins, you know, on the road at Syracuse and on the road at Virginia Tech. You don't expect Liberty to win games like that. They've got two more tests this season on the road against North Carolina State, RIP Tuffy 2, and on the road at Coastal Carolina, who has also been very, very impressive this year. Uh, what I like about Liberty is that they're their quarterback, Malik Willis, Auburn transfer, dude threw for 217 yards and three touchdowns, also carried the ball 19 times for 108 yards and added another touchdown on the ground. So certainly a dynamic offensive player that you have to look out for, and you can't take Liberty lightly right now. And Yeah, beat we, Virginia Tech, at yeah. Virginia
2: Tech, respect. That win against Syracuse, Syracuse is... Not a Power 5 football team this year. No, they're they're horrible. Not. you're right. And so they're going to play NC State like you talked about. If they beat NC State, I'll take them more seriously because NC State looked good, but I'm not putting too much into their undefeated. Congrats, you're undefeated. You beat the teams you played in front of you, but I'm not ready to put them in the national picture yet.
0: Are, are you ready to consider Hugh Freeze now for a big-time job again?
1: I mean, if you want as a PR department, if you want to take that risk, I mean, somebody's going to do it. Good coaches get hired, but I mean, it would have to be a school that feels like they're the right fit.
0: All right. Let's move down to the SEC. 60 seconds down south is going to be stretched out a little longer today. <laughs> uh, huge game in Jacksonville. I can't remember what Brad Nessler said. It was like the world's largest socially distanced outdoor cocktail party or something, but. <laughs> Unbelievable game. Florida wins 44-28, now on track to win the SEC East and match up against Alabama in Atlanta for the SEC Championship. Just a head-scratching start. Uh, 14-0 UGA, less than four minutes into the game. And then at that point, Florida went on a 41-7 run and completely dominated. Kyle Trask was the Heisman candidate that we have expected him to be all season. 30 for 43, 474 yards in the air, four touchdowns. He also threw a pick six, so if you want to add that, that's five touchdowns. Uh, Great game from Florida's rushing attack, only 97 yards on the ground, but again, like Indiana, they were able to just be the bell cow and set up for that offense. Kyle Pitts was injured on a absolutely disgustingly dirty play from one of UGA's cornerback. He was a, uh, he had a concussion so we'll see how that goes, but again, proving why he's probably going to be a top 10 pick this off season. Doug thoughts.
2: Domination from Florida. They let up the two touchdowns like you talked about in the first 4 minutes, and that first half though, they held Georgia's offense to zero points, barely any yards and they control the ball for most of that half. They ended up winning 44-28. By the way, Georgia, they got issues. Their offense is not good. Their quarterback, and now us, their two quarterbacks, need some help, and I don't know if they're going to get it this season. I doubt it, but they have some problems. But this is a win for the Gators. This is a rivalry game. This is one that they needed to really establish themselves in that top of that division. They did it. Congrats to the Gators.
1: Yeah, the story here for Florida is the defense because the story going into the game was they can't stop the run, and then you see 75 yards in the first play, you go, oh, boy, here we go again. Um, but then, yeah, like we have written down here, like U J ran for 70 yards uh, for the rest of the game. So Florida's defense came to play even if they didn't show up in the first five minutes of the game, and Florida's offense is as legit as we thought it was.
0: So this is an indictment on Kirby Smart and the dogs again. For some reason, JT Daniels is not playing, which I, I can't understand. Stetson Bennett is a completely ineffective SEC quarterback, and I think he would be a completely ineffective quarterback anywhere. Well, I, I could see, I see
1: why they went with him, because you have Newman opt out, right? And yes. you have um, Daniels trans- transferring in. You don't know what you have. This kid comes out. He takes the job, basically. Um to start the year, they lose to Alabama. It's clear that he does not going to have the athletic ability to beat these top tier defenses. And so at some point in the next few games, as a coach, you have to kind of make the decision of if you want to make the switch. And it just does like it just seems like they're sticking with their guy and, and for better or for worse, it's costing them.
0: Well, we also talked about this, or we have talked about, you talked about the the running attack being stifled by the Gator defense. Also, this Georgia defense was something of a calling card coming into this game. They allowed ten points against Arkansas, six against Auburn, twenty-one against Tennessee, and three against Kentucky. You look at that; you think that's pretty good, but those are against four of the worst offenses in the SEC. And then you look at the two games they lost: forty-four points to Florida and forty-one to Alabama, the two best offenses in the SEC. And it kind of the stars align. You, you the the real team is exposed. So maybe not the season they were hoping for in Athens this year. But Kirby Smart, it's just it's been the same thing every year. you kind of like a step away. And in the national championship three years ago, they were a play away. So we'll see what happens with the dogs. Obviously, you hope they get their quarterback if it's Daniels next season. Um, but just, just a, another bump in the road for UGA, which brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> Tennessee, Arkansas, another one that went on this weekend. Uh, Tennessee's another program that's just in trouble, and Phil Fulmer should never have been fired 15 years ago. But it's so the third season for Jeremy Pruitt. He was supposed to make the jump this year. He got his guys, but everyone always talks about the third year. It's not happening. Started off 2-0, four straight losses after that. Um, and not really to to all that great teams. You got a loss to Kentucky and Arkansas. You mix in Alabama and UGA there. But Tennessee was up 13 to nothing in halftime. Lost this game 24 to 13 against Arkansas. Speaking of Sam Pittman, the head coach of Arkansas, a realistic chance to win coach of the year this year. They weren't they weren't supposed to be anything.
1: He also just tested positive for
0: COVID. So oh well, breaking news. Hopefully he gets gets healthy. So yes, I uh, we'll see if he gets the uh, Sabin tests like, three times every day. But yeah, he's got a real chance to win Coach of the Year candidate. Uh, you know, Tom Allen's right there with him for, for uh, National Coach of the Year. But, again, this is this is Tennessee we're talking about. You cannot be 2-4. and four. Jeremy Pruitt has no excuses. I don't know where this program goes from here. I'm interested to see how it goes the rest of the season.
2: Well, they're going to play Texas A&M next week. Then they play Auburn the following week at Auburn. Vanderbilt that should be a win. So, I mean, realistically, they could go – what, what would be the math? Like three and seven? Am I doing that math right?
0: Yeah, one and three the rest of the way. So yeah. three and seven. They
2: could realistically go three and seven, like you said. For this program, that is an
0: abomination. Uh, next up, Pac-12. We don't want to talk. I don't really want to talk about any of their games. I say we, but I mean me. Um, I mean I agree. <laughs> a, a good game. Arizona State at USC. USC came all the way back in the fourth quarter. Uh, but that game, the only interesting note from that game was that it was played at 9 a.m. Pacific. The Morning Birds. 9 a.m. Pacific. How crazy was that? Nuts. But nice to have Pac-12 football back, you know, turn on your TV at 11 o'clock and, and the UCLA game is only in the second quarter. So pretty pretty nice to have that back. We talked about this a little earlier, but I am interested to get your thoughts. Does a 6-0 and Pac-12 champion, realistically that's probably either Oregon or USC, have a chance to get into the playoff?
2: Yes, but no. I, I don't think it will happen. It would just have to take the top teams to pretty much all lose two games the rest of the season. I just don't see Clemson doing that. I don't see Bama doing that. I don't see an Ohio State or an Indiana, whoever it is, doing that. So, it, and it's just tough because their strength of schedule in the Pac-12 is decreasing year by year. It's only Oregon and
0: and USC. USC really. Let me let me just shoot one hypothetical at both of you. Just sure. This- so we'll say Florida and Alabama are going to be playing in the SEC championship. Alabama remains undefeated, but they lose to Florida. So Florida, as a one-loss SEC champion, is in the playoff. Let's just, for argument's sake, say it's Oregon. Oregon is the undefeated Pac-12 champion. You got the first three spots are filled. Do you take a one-loss Alabama who lost to the SEC champion, or do you take undefeated Oregon Pac twelve champion.
2: One lost Alabama. Alabama 10, not, out even, of time. Yeah. not
0: even. Close. I think and I think that's the way the committee will go too, because we've seen I don't want to call it bias, but it, it it looks like bias towards the SEC, but that's because the product is better.
1: Yeah. I mean you can call it bias all you want, except for when you look at the team's play, like the team's just better. Yeah.
2: And to be honest, playing six games, sure it's not your fault, but I mean, you could play six games, go 6-0. and If you're supposed to play two more games, you can go 0-2. Yeah. So it doesn't really show your full strength.
0: A uh, couple more teams I told you we'd talk about. BYU, another domination. You know, the, the score didn't really tell the story because Boise State was forced to go to their third-string quarterback. Their first two quarterbacks went down in the game. But Zach Wilson's legit. He's a legitimate Heisman candidate. Um, he's going to get draft but He is getting Give draft buzz Bears, this year. Yeah. <laughs> BYU, again, 7-0, and keeps their playoff hopes alive. I think 8-0 eight now, actually, keeps yep. their playoff hope alive. I love this team. I love this team. They're very exciting. Zach Wilson is dynamic. He would be great on the Bears. Uh, also, you watch this game, Boise State's Bluefield. I mean, come on, is there anything better than that? Any thoughts about this BYU team? I, I know they're probably not legitimately being considered as a playoff uh, contender, but a legitimate threat to make a New Year's Six Bowl, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean it's this team is no stranger to sending talent to the NFL either. Um, yeah, they just keep chugging along, they just keep winning, just keep beating teams.
2: This was their last real test of the season too. They play North Alabama next week, and then San Diego State the final week. So this team really should not be have any losses on their resume at the end of the season.
0: And then there was Cincinnati, of course. We talked about Luke Fickle. Um, we talked about his future, but he he again is going to be one of the guys that's going to be like, okay, I'll I'll take. I can take whatever job I want after this, but his Bearcats team is very good. They have uh, they played the meat of their schedule already. Not that there's really meat in the AAC, but uh, they beat a ranked Army team, a ranked SMU, uh, killed a ranked SMU team, uh, beat up on Memphis, US or excuse me, ECU next week. That'll probably be a shootout. So take the over if you're a betting man. And then they got UCF Temple and Tulsa, so a clear path for for Cincinnati to, uh, to go undefeated. And I think the way the American Athletic Conference works is it's the top two teams play each other in the conference championship. So right now, if the season ended, that would be SMU and uh, Cincinnati. Uh, Because I'm going to, well, if the season ended today, it would actually be Tulsa, but they've only played four games. So I'm going to assume it's going to be SMU and Cincinnati in a rematch. And if Cincinnati can win and go undefeated, they have a better chance of making the playoff than BYU does because they play in a conference. Uh, But they are, they have, they have a clear path to a New Year's Six Bowl.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think if you get some losses ahead of them, too, they can start pushing for the playoff, but they're going to need some help. But, yeah, I mean, we've been beating it to death for the first half hour. Fickle will be able to pick whatever job he wants. What he's done in Cincinnati has been incredible. They just kept rolling over Houston. It doesn't look like they're going to be stopped anytime soon. And like BYU, I don't think any of the top like power five teams want to play a team like Cincinnati. I
2: mean, Cincinnati has not let up more than 13 points in their last five games. Are they the best defensive team in Cincinnati?
1: I was
0: talking about how good their their offense is. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That was funny. Yes, probably. Um, Thank you. Their, Thank their you. offense is incredible, but their defense is even better than their offense. And that's coming from an offense that put up 342 rushing yards this weekend. Their quarterback added 100 as well. So, Doug, are they the best defense in Cincinnati? Maybe. 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 That's the old can Alabama beat the Jets question. (laughs) Uh, That's it for college football this week. You know, big, big first 35 minutes for us. Uh, Next week, hopefully, won't be a letdown for IU, and then we'll get to preview Ohio State. Let's move to the big boys. NFL, great weekend in the NFL this weekend. Uh, we'll start off in uh, where are they? Are they in Tucson, Phoenix, Phoenix? Phoenix, yeah. Cardinals, Dolphins, a barn burner, 34-31 final. Dolphins win. Brian Flores, another masterpiece. Uh, you you heard it here first, folks. Where where's our head at? Where's our head at? These teams are fun. This is the future. Is there, well, I mean, right,
1: we we have this habit of starting off by talking about the losers on this podcast, and I'll do it again. But is there a more fun quarterback to watch in the league right now than Kyler Murray? Could be Tua. Maybe, Maybe he could watch could, this game. Tua was phenomenal. I mean, all right, I'll talk about Tua first then. As a, I'm, I'm, first of all, on record as a Tua guy. I have said back uh, in his college days when if he did not get best in the fourth quarter of all those games, then he would have won the Heisman that year that I think Kyler Murray won it. Um, yeah, uh, the Dolphins all of a sudden are becoming a scary team. Their defense is good. Um, they can play uh, on the outside. They have a great secondary. They can rush the passer. They were turning the ball over. Um, yeah, It was a shootout. It was, a, it was a, probably the most fun game of the weekend and a, and a weekend full of fun games. Yeah, and if you told me Miami-Arizona at the
2: start of the season would be this good of a game, I would have told you you're crazy. But realistically, it was, and these teams are both 5-3 and three now. They're both in the hunts. I really do think that Miami has a shot of the AFC East, Arizona's in a little bit tougher position because of their division and how good it is, but they're right there too. And so for me, this is more of a Dolphins really showing that they're for real. You talked about the defense. Not only do they get turnovers, but they get points off those turnovers. Another pick six, or a fumble recovery for a touchdown yeah. uh, in this game. This is a fun team, and both of these quarterbacks, both number ones, both can rush, both made some nice plays to get the first downs, both can throw. Like you said these are two guys that are going to be the future of the league.
0: I uh these I would describe both the Cardinals and the Dolphins as teams that I I wouldn't want to play in the playoffs. Yeah. Um definitely. just just scary, you know, anything can happen. This Dolphins defense is legit. I I keep saying his name, but Brian Flores the way he has dynamically changed that culture in a year and a half is inspiring. Um they've got a real both of these teams have a real future as long as those two guys are playing quarterback. And uh I I'm just I'm just excited about the product on the field. It's like I get to geek out about, about this team. Both these guys, Tua and Kyler, like didn't get a whole lot of love. No one loves a, a short quarterback who runs first, but these guys are successful. Kyler Murray is, I think I think I could correctly say that he's my m- most favorite player to watch in the NFL. I've never seen someone he might not be the fastest player, but he's the quickest player. I've never seen someone as quick as Kyler Murray.
1: Well, he might also be the fastest cuz as soon as if he squares somebody up, he's getting past them. There's nobody who could who could stay with him one-on-one. Um I think the misconception about Tua is that he's a runner first because he's got a really good arm. He's very accurate with the football. Um the touchdown he threw to take the lead um yesterday was just incredible. He threw it over two defenders. Uh, I d- the more that kid plays, the more confidence he's going to gain. The more they're going to open up the offense for him, and uh, yeah. If you, I mean, if you're a Miami Dolphins fan, like you, you have to be excited. You have to be. Excited. And
2: the cool thing is, for both of these quarterbacks, we know that they can be good, but a lot of this season, especially for Kyler and Tua, just in his last game. Sp- so we'll start with Tua. Last game. The Dolphins won. Tua did really not have a great game. He didn't really do much. It was the other points of the offense and special teams and defense that scored for them. For Kyler, he turned the ball over a couple of times. He's always had the legs, but the arm was questionable at times this season. So for them to really come together and put on a show and put on the, the number one game of the week realistically— Props to both of them, and, and they got a bright future ahead of them.
0: Another one where the score didn't really tell the story, the Buffalo score didn't tell the story. Uh, Buffalo-Seattle, 44-34 final. Buffalo was really in control the entire game. I think at one point it was 27-20, and that was as close as the game got. But Buffalo was in control. Josh Allen was phenomenal, Four fifteen in the air, three touchdowns. And you know what? He didn't turn the ball over this time, so that's huge. This isn't an indictment on Seattle because to go into Orchard Park and win on the road against a good Bills team is challenging. So just, just a small hiccup for the Seahawks, but certainly a performance you're looking for if you're a Bills fan who view themselves as legitimate contenders this year.
1: Well, this is the Bills defense we thought we were going to see going into the season, and they've been torched um, lately. Not, I mean, not so much yesterday, even though they did give up uh, 34 points. But uh, if, like, to be able to hold that Seattle offense down enough to be able to jump out to a lead like they did was really impressive from the Bills' defense. And like you said, um, Josh Allen, who's known for the stupid turnover, for doing something dumb with the football, for fumbling in the pocket, for throwing a bad interception, uh, didn't turn the ball over. And so if he's not going to turn the ball over, and not only will he not turn the ball over, but, oh, throw for over 400 yards and four touchdowns and rush for another, um, then this Bills team, especially at home, is going to be really, really hard to beat because the defense gains confidence. They have a number one corner who can lock down a number one receiver. Uh And it's really hard to tackle that guy once he gets going, and he can make every throw on the field.
2: And Allen's a guy that in week two or three was getting MVP buzz. We were giving him MVP buzz. he deserved it. He was putting up like 30 points a game. He was throwing for 350 yards a game, getting touchdowns, limited the interceptions, and then went on a two-game losing streak against the Titans and Chiefs, albeit great teams. So for him, it was really about showing that he can beat a really good team because we know the Seahawks, whether they won or lost this game, we're going to be a dynamic team in the playoffs and they are going to go far. So For the Bills to show out at home and realistically they were the underdog at home everyone really liked the Seahawks for them to prove that, you know what, I can go head-to-head with Russell Wilson and beat him on my field shows a lot.
0: So, the Seahawks are averaging 34.3 points a game. They are giving up 30.4 points a game. And this is no longer the Legion of Boom. Seattle's defense this year is virtually unrecognizable if you've watched the NFL for the last 10 years. Does this Seahawks Uh, team—we know their offense can score at will, but can this team win a championship with their defense giving up as many points as they've given up? They haven't given up less than 20 points this season, uh, and the least amount of points they gave up was 23 to the Dolphins. Everyone else has gotten more than 25. It's crazy. Short answer, yes. And I think the defense will
1: get better. Jamal Adams has been out. He came back for the first time in like three or four weeks yesterday. Um, They just traded for Carlos Dunlap. So once he gets more reps, he'll be more comfortable with the defense there. Um, They're not good. By no means are they good. But I think if you saw with the Chiefs last year, and I don't think their, their defense was as bad as Seattle's has been, but I think a defense can get a little hotter. And if they can drop that number from like 30 to like, twenty five even, twenty-four, then they're in a really, really good spot. And so like I I have this bad habit, not bad habit, I call it a good habit of betting on Russell Wilson, especially when he goes down in games. Um and so I don't I don't know if it'd be time to panic in Seattle. I still think they're okay.
2: No, they're fine. If Russell Wilson can improve his play, limit the turnovers, and really be the MVP of the league, I think the defense will hold itself to to go far in the playoffs. But if he's turning the ball over and putting the defense back on the field and they're getting exposed, then it's going to be a problem of this team can't win a Super Bowl. They can't even advance to the championship series.
1: Yeah, they need Russell Wilson operating at an MVP level um, right now if the defense is going to play that way. Because like you said, they're scoring 34, but they're giving up 30. And so he's got to be perfect all the time and they're not going to win. But I think there's room for improvement.
0: Another team with room for improvement is that team that plays where the pirate ship is. Tampa Bay, New Orleans, an absolute stinker. We're not going to talk about the losing team first because the Saints Saints defense, as bad as Tom Brady was, the Saints defense was phenomenal this game. Uh, 38-3 was the final. Drew Brees, to give him credit, Drew Brees had an unbelievable game. His arm looked great. Uh, every package they ran with Taysom Hill seemed to work, which is not the case sometimes, uh, great ground attack, 138 total yards on the ground. Michael Thomas, the seven-yard slant king, was back, and uh, he was effective for a guy who has missed pretty much the entire season. He only had five receptions, but six targets, you know, good good to get his feet back in. Um, New Orleans has got weapons. Drew Brees has shown in the second half of the first half of the season that he is capable enough to lead this Saints team still. Uh, pretty exciting if you're in New Orleans, especially if you're a fan of their defense.
1: Yeah, like you said, Michael Thomas came back and he had six targets, but uh, it's not like they really needed him. Mm-mm. And Drew Brees has alluded to it after the game. He's like, "Uh, Bucks had all their weapons. Like I figured it was gonna be one of those games, but um, their defense really came to play. The defensive line controlled the game. Cam Jordan, um, to start was just, from the first play of the game was just all over Brady right in his face. Uh, the Bucks could not get anything going. I sat here last week and talked about how the the Saints' defense is actually sneakily good. And they make plays. They're not afraid to play press. They're mean. They're nasty. Um, yeah, the, I don't. I don't know what happened with with the Bucks last night, but it was not pretty. No, but to the Saints' credit, this is
2: a team that if they tie the Bucks now, they're going to get the edge and they're going to win the division. They beat them in Week One, and now they beat them later in the season and blew them out. I don't know how many times Al Michaels said the word "clinic," but it was a lot more than I expected. Uh, so for the for the Saints, a massive win. They're 6-2. and two. They are on a five-game win streak. So tough games coming up, but that's the reality of the NFL. Should we talk about the
0: Buccaneers? Yeah, why don't you lead us off?
2: For me, don't look too much into it. I think it's a team that you know got down early. Tom Brady tried to get himself going, couldn't do anything, really. It was really, really bad. But this is a team that once they get their rhythm going, they still have a good defense even though they let up 38 points. It's just one of those games for me.
1: It, bad. It was I,
0: just I, bad I think you hit the nail in the coffin. Um, Antonio Brown was back in the lineup. Al Michaels again noted this that he is on thin ice with that uh with the Buccaneers organization because victims advocacy groups are not happy that he is playing right now. Um, but it is, you know, if you look at it just from a football perspective, it is a a huge weapon for Tom Brady to to have in the lineup. He was targeted five times and had three catches. I completely agree, Doug. This defense is better than allowing thirty eight points, and Tom Brady is better than throwing three interceptions and no touchdowns. This is a game you kind of just walk away from and be like, "Well, it happened. Let's just move on to next week." Bruce Arians is a, a kind of coach that's going to have you prepared for next week, anyways. Uh, but Interestingly enough, like this could have been like the worst game I've ever seen Tom Brady play. Was, I've been watching him play for a long time.
1: It was terrible, and I mean, and they only ran the ball four times too. And so it's like at a certain point, the Saints were just able to pin their ears back and get after Brady, and it showed. His QBR was three point eight. He had three interceptions. It was just, I mean, you just this is the one where you I know the like, Madden talks about this all the time. Like, it's so stupid the the recordings that play over and over again. But it's like this is one of those games where you just burn the game tape and you move on. Jameis Winston was smiling big after this game. Oh Jameis my God. Winston looked. We got a looked,
0: Jameis sighting. He looked phenomenal. He looked. Uh, I'll say about Jameis. He looked very thin, um, and this is obvious. Like legitimately, like smaller than he was at the end of his Bucks career. He was chunky. Um, I thought he looked the most in shape I've seen him since he was at Florida State. And this is obviously a stepping stone for him to to get behind and learn from Drew Brees. Maybe he takes over as the Saints quarterback next year if Drew Brees retires. But I I mean, I would think it's Taysom Hill. I, I don't know. But he looks good. Um, not that we're going to get a whole lot from him in garbage time, but it, it was good to see Jameis's face on the field, certainly. He was, one, he was one for one with zero interceptions. Yeah, I, hey, Al Michaels, Al Michaels, again, we talk about Al Michaels all the time, but this he's the reason, he's the GOAT for a reason. He said, when Jameis throws a ball, someone's going to catch it, we just don't know if it's the <laughs> offense or the defense. Uh, let's move on. Chargers, Raiders, another great one. Raiders win, uh, you know, kind of. <laughs> uh, they're five and three. No one's really talking about the Raiders. They're five and three. Certainly a chance to get into the playoffs. You, they're in the same position as the Dolphins right now. Back to back heartbreakers for the Chargers. Good news. I am going to start with the losing team this week or this game. Good news. Justin Herbert's your guy. He is a gamer, and this Chargers offense is very good. Bad news. You're probably going to have to fire your head coach because he's not the guy. <laughs>
2: No, and he, I think specifically, there was actually multiple times where he made stupid decisions, but I know at the end of the first half his clock management was horrible, and you just can't lose all these games when your rookie quarterback is playing this well, he's giving you the lead early in the game, into the third quarter, and then you blow it. And sometimes it's coaching, sometimes it's defense, sometimes it's even the
1: offense, can't continue into the fourth quarter. But, I mean, Justin Herbert's the rookie of the year right now, right? I mean, yeah, it's him or Joe Burrow, but yeah, I mean, you have a quarterback like you said playing at that level. It's like you look at these two teams, both the Raiders and the Chargers, and you're just like the the Raiders are just a little bit more mature version of the Chargers. Like they they play similar styles of game. Like obviously the the quarterback gets it done a little bit more for the Chargers than um, for the Raiders. The Raiders probably run the ball a little better, but like two like like you said, it's uh, like what is the difference in these two teams and coaching? It came down to coaching.
0: Yeah. Uh, I yeah I, I mean I cannot agree agree with you more. This happened last week against, against the Broncos for the Chargers too. So that's that's a two game swing, really a four game swing for them. And instead of being two and six right now, they could be four and four.
1: But it literally it literally came down to the last play of the game. And I, for for whatever reason, you have Keenan Allen on the field, you have Hunter Henry on the field, uh, and you decide to run a fade to the backup tight end or the third string tight end. I did, the play call was terrible. I. I don't understand how they didn't see he dropped it right away. It just it was bad. As a Chargers I feel bad for the Chargers fans,
0: but I mean Justin Herbert's your quarterback of the future, so you could be excited. We joke about how the Chargers play this have played the same game every week since Phillip Rivers was drafted. They really do, though. They, they have it's nuts. The Chargers have lost six games this year, none of them by more than seven points. They are always in it at the end of the game. They have not lost a game by more than a possession this year, and that's, and that's crazy. To, be, to go from a bad team to a mediocre team, you have to start winning some of those games. And then to go from a mediocre team to a good team, you got to start winning most of those games. So there's a chance for this Chargers team to develop. Obviously, you know, Justin Herbert's your guy. Move forward. Get into another year or two. We'll figure this thing out. Uh, another good one. Another. There were a lot of good ones. This Another week. good one. Uh, dude, Steelers dude. Cowboys. <laughs> this was this game was terrible. This was if you love shitty football. This, this game was. It came down to the game. last play. Yeah. I. I look. I'll start, again start with the losing team. My Pittsburgh Steelers eight no, By the way, uh, Garrett Gilbert was fine. Garrett Gilbert was in in miles ahead of Ben. Why DiNucci. was
1: Ben DiNucci even considered? I. Uh,
2: uh, to give him a shot. I, to show I, he wasn't capable of anything
0: garrett gilbert had a had a very good six games in the uh whatever he played the afl or a competent what, football player yeah, whatever other league he played in uh this again kind of like uh the patriots for the Steelers even though the Steelers won this game it was kind of like well we didn't play our best somehow we found a way to win we move on the next week and great teams find a way to win well, they found a way to win because they're playing the cowboys and a third-string
1: quarterback who was, while he was decent, and like Pittsburgh's defense is really good, but, I mean, for the way Ben played and the way that offense was playing was straight-up anemic. If they play a good a good offense, then Pittsburgh definitely loses this game. Um, it could be a product of just kind of looking past the Cowboys, um, overlooking them like a little bit of a hangover off the Baltimore game. I'm not sure who Pittsburgh plays next week, um, but, yeah, I... Play the, the Bengals next week. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I... I don't know what I'm going to do. I like to, to make my decisions later in the week, but Joe Burrow and the Bengals are definitely a team I'm looking at to kind of make a little upset noise in Pittsburgh. They've never been 8-0. They're 8-0 for the first time in team history, which means they've never which been
0: 9-0. very surprising considering the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if
1: you're it – does, it doesn't worry you if you're a Pittsburgh fan. But, I mean, if you – the way Ben played in this game, and I said it last week, I'll say it this week, I think he's been the noodle arm of the week. Um, I, he's He's been a little worrisome.
2: No, I don't think. He he was in the first half. They only scored nine points. But then if you look at his stat line, which obviously you got to watch the game and look at the stats, both 300 yards, three touchdowns, made a count. And let's give credit to the, the pass catchers on this team. J.J. Smith-Schuster, Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, and then, of course, Eric Ebron at tight end. Those are four guys that can make opponents miss and score touchdowns when they need to. Also, like you were saying about the Cowboys, they're on their fourth string, I guess, quarterback, Zeke Elliott was hurt, so for them to be in this game, I know that they didn't win and they kind of blew it, but I mean it's better than that they played all season, right?
0: The Cowboys have a lot of excuses because yeah. they have uh, their both of their lines are completely decimated. They've lo- They've been cycling in middle linebackers, and finally Van der Esch is healthy and Jalen Smith is is playing exceptionally well. But what really stuck out to me is the Dallas's defensive line stopping this Pittsburgh running attack. Uh, with Benny Snell and James Conner, who have been very effective this season. 46 total rushing yards for the Steelers this week, and you could certainly feel that making a difference, especially on that last drive where uh, Dallas was able to get a stop and then have a chance to win the game. They stopped James Conner. I think he he ran for like four yards on that drive on four downs. So pretty impressive game from the Cowboys, even though they lost. But to be doing what they're doing with – Garrett Gilbert and Zeke Elliott, who is not healthy, and playing behind high schoolers, <laughs> pretty impressive. Uh, let's talk about a good game: Chiefs Panthers. Even though I just said that was this a was game. no, this was a good <laughs> game. That game was terrible. This game was actually very good. Thirty-three, uh, thirty-one, Chiefs. I really, I, I we'll talk. We'll start with the Chiefs, but I really like this Panthers team a lot, uh, and just you know hold that in your brain for the next three minutes. But Chiefs again, great teams find a way to win. And that's certainly what Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and the Chiefs did this week. I don't want to get into Patrick Mahomes' stats because they're always impressive. And that play where he was, like, on the run as he took the snap, then circled back around <laughs> and found uh, Demarcus Robinson in the end zone. That was one of the craziest things. Ever. I was like, what is he doing? Is he calling a timeout? Like, what's going on here? Very impressive. Doug, first thoughts.
2: Hot take. That play was overrated. You guy just ran in a circle and made a good throw. That he usually makes... I don't think that pre-snap him running and making a circle was anything special. It was cool. It looked cool. But Mahomes has made better plays than that. Hot take. That's that's my opinion. Um, you said Mahomes, and you didn't mention his stats. I will because they're incredible. 372 <laughs> yards, four touchdowns, zero picks. I mean, if you have those stats and you have him making the throws that he has been, good luck beating this team. I don't care if you score 31 points like the Panthers did. They'll outscore you. And even though the Panthers really looked good in the first half, I think they were up at least 10 or so. They, the Chiefs made a comeback, and they knew this was a must-win game at Arrowhead Stadium. The rushing attack was not really there, 12 rushes for 30 yards. But once
1: again, Mahomes, if you're playing that well and you're the MVP, you're going to win games. Listen, this is exactly the same thing I was talking about with Seattle. It doesn't matter how good your defense is if your offense is going to be that much better. Right. And with Patrick Mahomes, the way he was distributing the ball, um, it was gonna be tough for them to lose that game. I'm with you, honestly, on the on the the touchdown play. It was kind of a creative way to get him to roll out, but like nobody is, you're not motioning out to like stop the quarterbacks. So like, I don't know what the the goal. I don't know. It was a creative way to get to roll him out, but I wasn't. I was also with you. I wasn't like, oh my god, that's the most insane play I've ever. It's like,
0: he rolled right. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever seen a quarterback take a snap on the run.
1: I think I feel like I've seen that before. I, I feel like that's I feel like that happened in like the mid two thousands, early two thousands. I don't know. I feel the like Wildcats. Rodgers has definitely done something stupid like that. I promise you. Um, I'd have to go back and look though.
0: The storylines for me from from this game are uh, go kind of beyond the season because more than likely bien and Joe Brady are going to be the two highest sought-after head coaching candidates, both the offensive coordinators for these teams. Uh, and you see why. Because you see what Joe Brady, as I think he's like 30, as a 30-year-old is doing for this Carolina offense. Um, and Matt Rule, too. Love Matt Rule. And you see what BNME has done for this Chiefs defense. So certainly warranted head coaching opportunities for them after this season. But let's talk about Carolina. Bridgewater, 310 yards, two touchdowns, no turnovers again. McCaffrey returned and had a, a, like almost, I think, more than 150 all-purpose yards, a uh, couple touchdowns. He was incredibly effective, but who's shocked there?
1: Well, McCaffrey's back, but is he back? Right, that was good. Shoulder, yeah.
0: Yeah, shoulder, and I think he hurt his rib as well. So we'll see. He is a, now questionable going into next week.
1: But... And B is the offensive coordinator.
0: Yes. Yeah, did I say it? Yeah. I, oh, thought I, said I just that. missed it. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's very a very obviously very exciting future if you're a Panthers fan, because Matt Rule is young. Teddy Bridgewater, even though it feels like he's been in the league forever, is not that old. Christian McCaffrey is not that old. So you have this episode and and. People don't talk about it enough, but Curtis Samuel, Robbie Anderson, and DJ Moore are wildly talented wide receivers. Robbie Anderson. Robbie Anderson, sorry. <laughs> and Robbie Anderson are wildly talented wide receivers. So, yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they they, they got a course. real chance to do something here in the next couple of years, even if Joe Brady leaves. Yeah, they have playmakers. They have playmakers. Especially if Drew Brees retires soon, James is a quarterback. They have some turnover
2: in New Orleans. That could lead some, some new teams in this division coming up. You are wildly
0: discounting the Atlanta Falcons. They got a oh, real chance yeah, with a 36-year-old Julio Jones. Uh, yeah, so a good game. Again, storyline here, great teams find a way to win, and the Chiefs certainly did that. Ravens, Colts, uh, defensive battle, uh, like we expected. If you expected anything different, you uh, obviously didn't do any research because the Colts and the Ravens have two of the best defenses in the league besides the Steelers, I would say. Uh, I think it was 24-10 to final uh yeah 24 to 10 in indianapolis a gritty road win for the ravens lamar jackson really didn't activate himself until the second half but they uh they dominated in the second half that the colts scored zero points so that's really the storyline the ravens defense was better and their offense did just enough
1: yeah i mean there was a meme circling twitter um at some point in the second uh, half yeah the colts had one yard total on yeah. offense um that's just not going to get it done. I don't need to tell – I mean, no, everybody's smart enough to figure out that you need more than one yard to compete in the NFL.
2: Also, I thought the meme you were talking about is Philip Rivers. I think it was either an interception or a fumble down the field. He's trying to tackle some guy, just twisted over his own feet. Oh, and he just fell He just, up and just and... fell over and, like, almost high-fived the sky or something. Yeah, that
0: was the meme of the weekend.
2: That was awesome. Uh, but bigger picture, if you're the Colts, you have a great defense. And tell me if you've heard this before from – someone Um, you have a great defense but with this quarterback you just can't win playoff games and meaningful games and this is a game that it was pretty much even odds you're not going to really face a Ravens team that's more decimated right now there's some issues with this team and the Colts had their chance but only 10 points Philip Rivers zero touchdowns one interception you just can't win games with this guy I thought you
0: were talking about the Chicago Bears (laughs) exactly (laughs) Uh yeah, so let's talk about the Chicago Bears then, shall we? Uh, Doug, I'm gonna let you gather your thoughts because I got I got something to say. Sure. Uh, five and four for the Bears now. Three straight losses. Let's I, again starting with the losing team, but they lost to a very good Titans team. Tennessee is incredibly talented. Even though Ryan Tannehill didn't light it up on the stat sheet, he has had a very good year, by, off of what he did last year. So a kind of renaissance year and a half for Ryan Tannehill. Derrick Henry, uh, to give the Bears credit, was held in check, 21 carries, 68 yards on a uh, rushing attack for Tennessee that is very effective. A.J. Brown was back, very good. Jonu Smith, touchdown uh, late in the uh, third quarter, so that certainly helped. It was a very well, even though they put up 24 points, this is a very good Bears defense, and it was a well-orchestrated attack across the entire game for Tennessee, so give them credit for that. Chicago. This is earmuffs. The, Bears fan. Yeah. Earmuffs. This is a storyline we've seen for Chicago for a lot. We know how good their defense is, so I'm not even going to talk about that. 17 points in the fourth quarter, zero before that. A comeback, kind of. Um, whether it was the Bears deciding they wanted to play or Tennessee kind of taking the breaks off a little bit. Storyline remains the same. Nick Foles, even with 335 passing yards, was, couldn't move the ball. Doug, I'm. I'll just. I'll give this one to you and see where your head's at.
2: So, a couple things. It, like you said, this is not a new problem. We saw this coming. Did I expect to win this game? No. Did I expect it to be a one point game away from the spread? No. I thought it would be even farther. Probably should have been. Um, so, if you're the Bears, right, you know your offense isn't good, but if your defense holds Ryan Tannehill to under fifty percent completion rate and only 158 yards passing, and Derrick Henry leads the league in rushing, I guess not anymore. I'm guessing Dalvin Cook takes that. If you hold him to 68 yards, and I know you're talking about how good the Bears' defense is, they're not really special at stopping the run. They've had issues with that this year. So for them to do that against Henry, only 68 yards, you should win that game. But once again, zero points in the first three quarters. They were 2-for-15 on third downs, and they really weren't close it's just going to be the same thing until you get BYU's quarterback in there.
1: <laughs> the most frustrating part about this Bears team is that we get to the fourth quarter and you knew they were going to score at least 10 points. And so it's like, where is the ability for this offense to put up points in the middle of the game? Because like Nick Foles threw for over 300 yards. Um, every time David Montgomery touches the ball, he gets hit by three guys in the backfield and still manages to get two yards. Um, you have some of the most talented guys in the league on the outside. Now in Robinson, um, Mooney's really coming on. Jimmy Graham at tight end looks good. Um, Komet's starting to come on a little bit. So it's not like there aren't playmakers along this offense. The offensive line obviously is beat up, and we felt that in this game. But just like the offensively, this, like this Bears team could beat anybody in the league. And so I think that has to be the most frustrating part for the Bears fans. You mentioned the offensive
2: line. That's the – I'd put that one A – with the problems on this team, and 1B is not the quarterback. It's the head coach. And it's the play calling specifically. So right now it's Matt Nagy calling the plays on offense. He's supposed to be an offensive guru. I mean, zero points or three quarters against a below-average Tennessee defense is not that. Um, so for the big question moving forward, right, we'll, we can talk about this game more if you guys really want to. It's a loss I don't really care to. Moving forward, you play the Vikings next week. You just stopped Derrick Henry on the road. Can you stop Delvin Cook? That's going to be another big test. The Vikings have some momentum now. It's on it's in prime time. I believe it's Monday night. Monday night. night. Yeah, Monday night. Kirk Cousins, we know. (laughs) Not great on Monday night. But this is a test. If you're either gonna beat a team that three weeks ago you thought you would sweep in the regular season, or are you gonna go back to five hundred, probably be out of the playoff race by then? It's a big test for this Bears team.
0: I'm glad you brought up the Vikings game because that's what I, I I wanted to move in that direction. Dalvin Cook has looked like Emmitt Smith, Eric Dickerson. You yeah. Know, take take your pick of the greatest Adrian of all Pearson time. Adrian Peterson even, yeah. from yeah. his time. It's, uh, it's been very impressive to watch. They haven't even need Kirk Cousins to choke away the game yet. I, I know it was the Lions that they beat, but they beat the Packers two weeks ago, so... A two-game win streak is still a win streak for the Vikings, and they kind of look like a new team. Their defense has stepped up a little bit. So this will be a test for the Bears in Soldier Field. Uh, if you can get this done against a hot Minnesota team, that's certainly good. The real test is in two weeks, also in primetime Sunday night against Packers against the Packers in Green Bay. I don't think that's going to go well for Chicago, but if you can find a way, a way to win those two games, all of a sudden you're sitting at 7-4 and four and you're right back in the the division lead because at that point the Packers will have lost you know, those two games so wake me up when I stop dreaming right <laughs> at, but more realistically they could also be five and six and talking about <laughs> getting rid of Nick Foles and Mr. Risky and Matt Nagy and then yeah. the offense or then the offseason becomes very hazy if you're a Bears fan uh, you were
1: very nice today, Justin. I thought you were going to be. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, I didn't go the eat shit and die route. Which <laughs> I, I could have.
2: It's because the potential for this Bears team, we know that it's not. The offense isn't going to do much. Right. Yeah. It's, it is. That. It's
0: very. It is honestly kind of. It's depressing to watch. If you're like. I, I know what I'm getting into watching a Falcons game, and they know what they're getting into watching a Bears game. It's like I, we're not going to score. And our defense, unless they hold the team to three points, we're probably not going to win. It's it's It sucks. I know oh, I know the feeling. They're both better than watching the Jets. True that. Uh, I, we do need to mention the Falcons because they won. Uh, they almost let it slip. Drew Locke. Just was asleep for three and a half quarters, and then all of a sudden, the the Broncos' offense showed up, scoring twenty one in the fourth quarter. Stop me if you've heard this before, but the Falcons almost blew a big lead, <laughs> thirty four to twenty seven final. Uh, really, you know, the the last two games to the Falcons, they've they've looked uh, impressive enough. You know, winning against a Panthers team on the road Thursday night, and then beating a, a offensively talented Broncos team, even though their offense didn't really show up for that long. Two straight wins, three and six. I I know this team's going to finish seven and nine and completely screw themselves out of a draft pick, but
1: whatever. Well, I think most encouraging for the Falcons fans is that the last two weeks you've had opportunities to blow fourth-quarter leads, and you haven't. True. And two weeks ago, I don't know, I didn't see the the end end of the game um, yesterday, but I know two weeks ago um, Arthur Blank was on the field. And so that was a nice little hurdle for the Falcons Falcons to get over. But there is a scenario where they went out and go, I don't know how many losses they have, but um, where they they push for a playoff spot and and end up in the middle of the pack there. And so, uh, yeah, uh, the bipolar Falcons season continues.
0: We've done this the last couple of years with this Falcons team. It's it's kind of been the same, start off slow and then win a bunch of games in the middle and just completely take yourself out of getting a top 10 draft pick. <laughs> I feel like that's what's going to happen this year, which is going to be – which what sucks is because you're going to bring in a new coach this year. Raheem Morris is not going to be – he's not the coach of the future. Uh, so you'd like to get your new coach a top 10 draft pick. That's just probably not going to happen.
2: By the way, I don't know if you heard this Sunday night while we're talking about the Falcons – when the Buccaneers were down 28-0. They were close to field goal range, and Chris Collinsworth goes, well, too bad they can't kick a field goal here and make it 28-3, to because you know Tom Brady can make a play then. 28-3
0: to is the most dangerous lead in football. <laughs> People don't talk about it enough, but it is absolutely the most dangerous I lost lead it. in football. I,
1: I, I can say that I... From watching enough games, sitting next to Justin, there will just be times where he's just like, 28-3 is in play. It's in play. It's <laughs> any game. doesn't matter what games. i just like, it's still in play? Like, wow, it really is scarring. Uh,
0: Keys, quick sentence or two. Tonight, Pats, Jets, big primetime game. This is why ESPN pays big. billions of dollars to the NFL. To get the two and five patriots against the zero and seven jets.
1: I'll probably send a tweet out off the account, but uh, I, because because this will come out tomorrow. But do not bet on the jets. For <laughs> the love of God. For the love of God. They're so like we're so bad. The team is so bad. I don't like whatever you hear about this Patriots team and all that yada yada yeah, stuff. It. The, the, the Jets are terrible. Do not bet on them. They're terrible. All right. Uh, that's all I got.
0: With that, why don't you take us right into the UFC?
1: Yeah. Um, I know Like we beat to death at the beginning of this episode, and we will continue to beat to death. The Hoosiers had a twelve uh, at a noon kickoff and beat Michigan for the first time in 24 games. So um, UFC was a little hazy on Saturday night, but Andre Arlovsky picked up a huge win in the octagon. Uh, he was fighting a younger guy, so um, my brother and I kind of thought that. Um, it would go the other way, but Arlovsky picked up the win in the co-main event. and the main event, Um, Glover Teixeira looked phenomenal against Thiago Santos. I will say that I thought Santos was going to kind of kick him in the legs, establish that he was the more powerful fighter, younger fighter, and uh, pick up the win in dominating fashion. And while he was able to hurt Glover, uh, I mean, Glover's wrestling and, and his jiu-jitsu, his ground and pound was just next level wasn't even close. Glover
2: in the first two rounds dominated, but then in the third round, Santos really came out and after being on the ground and being grounded or pounded for the first two rounds, almost knocks Teixeira out. So I think both of these guys have a future. This is a massive win for Glover. Mm-hmm. Does he get a title shot? But no, because of Israel, right? Yeah, no. I mean, they're gonna... He so wants I, it.
1: As of, as of last week or two weeks ago, uh, Israel Adesanya is gonna get the shot at Lahovic. and while the win for Teixeira is super impressive, I think that puts him... He's like he, he ends up being the next in line, so he's—he's right. like, he's like the third guy. He's the odd man out right now, but I—I uh, think if Santos, it was probably a combination of being out of the octagon too long and just having some uh, a lot of respect for Teixeira and you know his ability as a fighter. But I just—it seemed to me like if he was a little more loose with his striking, if he had a little bit more of a finishing instinct, kind of realizing that every time he was touching Glover, um, it was having a profound effect. It just it looked like he chased him down to the ground a little too quickly and, and allowed himself to get caught in positions where he wasn't so much better than, than he should be.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think he'll like I said earlier, he's gonna be back and he'll
1: what was he? He was the number one. Yeah, I mean his last fight. Contender, before, right? yeah, the last fight before he fought um Teixeira, he fought John Jones for the title. And yeah. while Jones won three out of five rounds, uh he had to be carried out of the octagon. And so yeah. um, that's just the the talent that Tiago Santos has. But you saw with somebody who's willing to wrestle with them, and that's something John Jones wasn't willing to do. John Jones, is, his likes to be the guy who who looks at you and says, "What are you good at?" and then that's what I'm going to try and beat you at. Instead of being like, "Okay, I'm a better wrestler than you, are. I can just take you down whenever I want." Which is something um, after watching Glover go to work, was something I absolutely believe John can do. So, uh, yeah, it, it was there were some good fights this weekend. Um, but if you want to hear more about fighting, tune in Friday uh, for Friday Fight Talk. Me and my younger brother talk fights every week, talk storylines, and so. Um, UFC will be more educated and, and more detailed on that. Any any closing thoughts on the UFC this week, Doug? Uh, this this next weekend, Dosanjos, the number
2: twelve contender in the lightweight division, supposed to play. Pronounce the name, please. He was
1: supposed to fight Islam Makachev, but yeah, Makachev pulled out, out due to injury. Um, so Dosanjos is called out. Michael Chandler. I doubt that fight's going to happen, but nah. we'll see if they can get Dosanjos an opponent um, for this weekend because he deserves it. They're scrambling. Yeah.
0: All right, let's move on to segments, gentlemen. Thank you for that. Uh, Good week, bad week. Keys, why don't we start with you? Good week to be a Hoosier fan. I mean, like we
1: said, we we go to a football school now. Uh, Michael Penix Jr., about an hour ago, is added to the O'Brien Award midseason watch list. Um, That's courtesy of a friend of the podcast, Zach Osterman. The O'Brien Award is given annually to the nation's best quarterback. He's the most important Mike in our lives. We have a top 10 ranked football team. Um, College basketball is coming back soon. The Hoosiers are already being disrespected. Um, So great week to be a Hoosier fan. Bad week to be the rest of the Big Ten for college basketball because, like I just said, the AP poll or the initial AP poll – Um, released this morning and Indiana not only was not ranked but was not even considered to be in the top 25 um, while a number of other Big Ten teams were so bad day to be the Big Ten Basketball Conference because the Hoosiers are coming. Doug? Good week I will stick with IU Basketball
2: actually. Uh, Trey Jackson Davis was named this week a preseason All-Big Ten Him and I believe nine others, but he's a top five, top six player in the conference, so I'm looking forward to what he can do on the court this year. Also part of the top 20 power forwards in the nation, the Carl Malone Award watch list. And then on the other side, the women's basketball team, Allie Patberg was just nominated for the preseason Nancy Lieberman watch, top 20 point guards. She's known to be a top three point guard in the league, so a lot of fun for the women's team this year. They'll be like 13th or 15th in the nation.
0: As good as, this, as good as the men's team is going to be, the, the women's team is going to be probably even better. Right. Bad week
2: for four teams in the NBA, including the Lakers, Heat, Denver, and Boston. The NBA start has officially had its date. It is December 22nd. Those four teams only played about two months ago, so they're getting a short end of the stick there. But for all of us, it's a good week. November 18th is the date of the draft, so that's exciting for fans like me and Justin for the Hawks and the Bulls. Yeah. Finally, we just got some action, and, and Christmas Day should be active for the NBA again.
0: Very, very exciting. Um, my good week is me. Uh, this weekend, the Hoosiers and the Gators won convincingly. Uh, there was some other news that broke Saturday morning that was also particularly exciting. So I had a fantastic weekend, and I am looking to parlay that success into next week. Uh, bad news, or bad week, excuse me. Big money head coaches, I alluded to this earlier. Seven-year contract, $52 million for Jim Harbaugh. That is how much the University of Michigan is paying him to lose to Ohio State every year. Uh, That contract runs through 2021. And a six-year, $35.4 million extension that was signed in 2019 for James Franklin. That runs through 2025. So a bad week to be making a lot of money and to be a combined one in five. Uh, why I love sports this week. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Masters week. Tea times are being released tomorrow. This is as much as I love college football. There is nothing I love more in sports than mass than the Masters. Uh, it is something I will be glued to the TV for for 12 hours for four straight days. Uh, I am wildly, wildly excited. Of course, the big storyline this week. This is a little bit of a preview because we're not, we didn't talk about it. But Tiger Woods is still defending his green jacket, even though it feels like six years ago when he won. That was only last April. So Tiger Woods, the defending Masters champion. Uh, Sergio Garcia announced today that he is not playing due to a positive COVID test, so uh, defending Masters champion not in the field, but still, it's the Masters. There might not be azaleas, but the leaves are changing colors. It's going to be beautiful. Don't tell anybody, but the greens will be painted vibrant green. (laughs) I am very much looking forward to this. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how the course plays without the roars. Um, No patrons in the crowd, but you know, be able to listen to Jim Nance's voice, cover that uh, event, and then uh, Vern Lundquist on the 16th power to call the par three. I am wildly excited, and I cannot wait to watch. Oh, also college game day from, from Augusta on Saturday morning. That's going to be uh, just ridiculously interesting, so I am very much looking forward to this week. Uh, Key's why do you love sports? I week?
1: love sports this week because of my coaches, sticking with the the current theme of the Hoosiers, um, the video of Tom Allen circling Twitter, and, and also obviously we saw it on the game, but uh, after the Matthews pick, he sprints down the sideline and basically tackles our starting safety. Um, if that doesn't make you want to play for that guy, then I don't know what will. And then for, for my mental, physical health, well-being, whatever you want to call it. The Boston Red Sox have officially yeah. re-signed Alex Cora as their manager. The reintroduction podca- or podcast, I keep saying, reintroduction press conference is tomorrow, Tuesday at 1.30. Um, my manager is back. I just feel like a piece of me is back. Like when you don't have a – it's like not having a manager is like not having a closer. Um, equally, both both are pretty important. And just I felt like a, a piece of me was restored this, this past week, and so that's why I love sports this week. I'll go
2: next. The – Game against Ohio State. Indiana-Ohio State just released about five minutes ago from when we are recording. Officially the big noon kickoff for Fox, and that means Gus Johnson and Joel Clatt will be in Columbus calling the game IU versus Ohio State. Hopefully it's going to be two undefeated teams, but I'm just looking forward to that. Also, I had another one. I have to do my due diligence to give shout-out to one of the most legendary game show announcers of all time Alex Trebek passed away at the age of 80 this year Um, a lot of memories I'm a big Jeopardy fan I'm sure you guys are too my favorite though is when there was a football category and three non-sports people obviously were the contestants and (laughs) nobody buzzed in for options that had the answers of option and offsetting penalties and it was just funny because Trebek had great responses, be like, "Oh, you guys aren't football fans, huh? Oh, well, let's see if you guys can get this last one." And nobody buzzed.
0: <laughs> to uh, to your credit, yes, Alex Trebek, a big part of I think everybody's life who who, who watches TV. Um, but the big noon kickoff that is exciting to have Gus Johnson on the call. Another noon kickoff for your tailgating problems. Uh, but this game still has the potential to. Uh, to be college game day because I think the only other game that could be college game day that week is Oklahoma Oklahoma State uh, and that all depends on what those two teams do next week but if the Hoosiers and the Buckeyes are both undefeated going into that game there's a legitimate chance we see uh, Reese Davis and the crew in Columbus with that that's our show today be sure to tune in next time for another sideline report
1: I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, i never seen a man.